I read a few years ago about an interesting uh, research experiment. Some people were asked to play a new game that they didn't know how to play. They had never tried it before. Uh, it involved partners on, on teams. And the interesting twist was that before they played the game themselves, they were watching others play. And among those playing was one player who was just so far above everyone else in skill and ability that you just couldn't deny it, this other player. And the other interesting twist was not only were they watching this group of average players and the one superstar, but they knew ahead of time whether that superstar would be their teammate or the other team's player. And as they asked these folks questions about that superstar, the, the uh, responses were quite interesting. For those who knew the superstar would be on their team, they praised the player's ability and skill and were looking forward to joining him. And for those who knew that superstar would be their opponent, they downplayed their ability and they attributed the skill to luck and to other circumstances and to anything else but that player's skill. It, it, another research study I, I read, believe it or not, demonstrated that referees are not biased against your team. I have a hard time believing that, okay? I, I like Philadelphia sports teams, and I know the refs are usually out to get them. But scientifically and statistically, there are just as many bad calls, and they do happen, but they happen to the other team too, and we kind of downplay them, and we notice the ones on our team, right? That in the world of sports, we can see these things. The superstar, ah, you know, he's a hack, but then he's on our team, and he's amazing, right? They draft, they pick him. Those are the things that happen, right? This has been going on forever, that human beings tend to uh, view things from a very skewed perspective. And it feels to me in these days like it's gotten worse, but I don't know that it has. But we are polarized, and, and we diminish the other political parties, you know, the other nations, the, the, the other churches, the other neighbors, you know, we, we polarize and are so far apart and won't listen to each other and cannot compromise, it almost feels like there's no hope that anything will ever be different. So as we come to this passage today, which is a massive passage, we are looking at Acts uh, 13 and 14, basically, overviewing it this week, what is often called the Paul's first missionary journey. Acts 13 and 14. And Lord willing, next week, Pastor Dave will drill down and dig into Paul's first sermon in the midst of this passage. But this week, we're going to overview it. And we're going to look at, at, at the big picture of what God is doing, of how God makes a difference, and how change can happen despite just incredible polarities and our own human biases that God can and does do amazing 
things. And we see that in this passage because the challenges, and we don't have time to go into them deeply, but if you'll read through this this week on your own, you see just this persecution arises, there's opposition. People literally chase Paul from town to town. He gets away and he starts preaching in another town and people are like, oh what, he's down there? And they head down there and start hassling him, even leaving him for dead after throwing stones at him to kill him. That's the kind of persecution and, 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 and problems and opposition and polarity that's at work in Paul's situation. And we don't face anything near that level of hostility. And yet, he doesn't give up. But in fact, finds more and more the key to making a difference. And what is it? Well, let's see here in God's Word. We're just going to read chapter 13, verses 1 through 12, as we look at God's holy word. Would you read with me Acts 13, verses 1 through 12? Now, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene and Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed to Cyprus. And when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus. It was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him and said, You who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, with you, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. And the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you and your word, and we are hopeful and expectant, yet, Lord, we live in a world that is deeply divided. We are often discouraged. Would you give us hope, give us grace, meet us here with your word, and show us your power. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So the studies I mentioned, and my own experience, all kind of confirm that we human beings are really kind of biased. And we kind of try to gather together and don't have much in the way of objectivity. If you listen to people on different political issues or different theological issues, try to debate, you'll often see that, right? They just, it's like if you just go back and forth 746 times, maybe then you'll change your view. Saying nothing different, saying the same things, maybe louder or not, it's like a cartoon. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. The only hope you have is that then you do what, you know, Bugs Bunny would do, which is say, yes, you do, and then they say, no, I don't. Oh, you got me, right? Go watch Bugs Bunny if you don't know what I'm talking about. But that, that, those differences and that, that bias we have is essentially filtering out what doesn't fit our beliefs, what doesn't fit our worldview, right? So you try to argue with an atheist that there, things aren't going to register. Likewise, when, when folks try to argue with us as Christians, we, we have a tendency to say, well, that doesn't fit or to put it together. You know, that's just the way we work as human beings. So how does change come, upon, come, come about? How do, we, how do we make a difference, especially in a world that polarizes, p- puts people north and south apart on just about any issue you can imagine? So what do we, how do we bring about change? What makes a difference? I want to say that this passage here would tell us that to make a difference in a polarized world, we have to rely on God's power. Essentially, we have to say, God, it's up to you. And in a sense, give up our own efforts, but not stop working. Give up our, our own plans, in a sense, but not stop planning. It's to have this sense of overarching confidence in the power of God. And we see that in three particular ways in this passage, that God's power is at work. We see God's powerful work, we see God's powerful word, and we see God's powerful witness. Those are the three main headings. Most of the time we're going to spend on the first one and not nearly as much on the second and third God's plan, essentially, for making a difference, the way difference comes about is through God's powerful work. Now, we see that in several places here. And the first thing that, that points to God's powerful work is the fact that the Spirit of God is the one who calls and sends workers. It is the Spirit of God who calls and sends. From the beginning of this passage, this amazing journey that Paul and Barnabas and John Mark for a time go on, is that God's Spirit is at work, calling them to the work and then sending them out. Look at verse 1 and 2 again. They were at Antioch, that is in Syria, the place where they had come back to, where Barnabas went, and they went and found Saul a couple chapters ago and brought him to Antioch. 
It becomes kind of the center of uh, Christianity outside of Jerusalem, and it's their home base. So there in Antioch, verse 1 says, In the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, and brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And look at verse 2. While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, while they were serving the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. You know, Saul and Barnabas had just returned from Jerusalem, and they brought this guy, John Mark, with them. Uh, in chapter 12, that's where Peter went when he was freed. Uh, Pastor Dave looked at that passage with us last week, right? He goes knocking on the door, and the, the maid is there, or the, the housekeeper, whatever she was, you know, it's Peter, and she doesn't let him in. That was John Mark's house. Apparently Paul was there, we don't know the timing, and Barnabas was there, and they had made this contribution to the saints in Jerusalem that they had brought with them to help the church in Jerusalem. And they just returned back to Antioch with, after taking those gifts. That's the end of chapter 12 talks about that. But as they're continuing, then they get back to work there in, in, in Antioch, in the church. They get back to work, and, and they're serving and ministering and, and teaching, it says. And they're praying and fasting. And the Holy Spirit comes and says, essentially, hey, um, Paul, Barnabas, I've got something for you to do. I've got work for you. Now, just think about that, just the... Just think about that for a second. They're, the Lord comes to them, and at this point in time, right, there, there, are, there are prophets getting direct revelation from God. You know, the, the, the Bible is in process, and Paul is among those receiving the inspired revelation of God. Uh, and these days, it, it doesn't quite work that way anymore, right? We have the scriptures, but in those days, the Spirit comes and says, boom. Guys, through a prophet, you've got work to do. While they're in the midst of praying and fasting, while they're together expressing as a church their reliance upon God, their need for God to work, their belief that God does work, the Holy Spirit meets them there, calls them, and sends them as they're praying and fasting. Look at verse 3. When they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. The sense here is that the church is gathered together, and especially the focus here seems to be on the leaders, the apostles and uh, teachers, the prophets and teachers, among them Barnabas and Saul. And, and the Holy Spirit says, you know what, I want these folks to go out. And the church says, you know what, that's a good idea. And they confirm that calling of Paul and Barnabas to go out. And they lay their hands on That's in a sense what they're saying. They're saying, we are sending you. And in fact, what they're saying is that the Holy Spirit is working through us. We acknowledge that and you go out. Because God is sending you. And we agree that God 
is sending you. And at the end of the journey, if you flip over to Acts 14, at the end of this first missionary journey that they're just beginning, at the, at the start of chapter 13, we read in verse 26 of Acts 14, from there, that is the city of Ataliah, the last stop on their journey, from there they sailed to Antioch, from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. Verse 27 of chapter 14, And when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he, God, had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Those, those who serve the Lord, those who are called and sent, don't go alone. They go with the Spirit, and they go with the blessing of God's people. They're called and sent by God. You know, that calling always involves an internal sense, which, which might be quick to come and it might be slow to come, an internal sense of this is, this is something God wants me to do. And I think it's this, you know, that conviction of this is what God is calling me to do, how he wants me to serve, but that calling is, is, is never just alone there. If it's legitimately from the Holy Spirit, then the church is going to say, I see that too. In particular, God raises up elders and leaders in his church to, to foster and shepherd that process, to say, yeah, I see that in you too. In fact, sometimes it works the other way, where the, the leaders will say, I see this in you. Have you considered maybe God wants you to serve this way? That's something, as those who are in the church, who are part of Christ's body, we ought to consider both sides of that equation, right? That that call to serve, and it could be something like, you know, I, I, I want to start this ministry. Or it could be, I want to serve this way. It could be, I want to lead this class. But those are not decisions that happen in isolation. It is the church. It is God's people through whom the Spirit works. And we do those things together. And both of them need to be there. So if, if you know, the elders come to you and say, we really think you ought to do this, and you're like, yeah, I'm not feeling it, pray about it. Think about it. Talk to other people about it. But don't be forced to do anything. Likewise, if you're serving in an area and you feel like, you know what, I, I'm, I think the Lord wants me to move on. I just don't have the joy in this. I, I just, I, I, I'm dry and not energized by it. You might just need a break and a season off. You might, God might be calling you somewhere else. As, as Christians, brothers and sisters, as people who believe in a risen Savior, that life comes from the dead, it's okay for things to end and for new things to
to arise. It's okay for things to stop. It's not the end. We believe in a God who brings new life. Those, those are dynamics to think of, especially as we come out of this pandemic season of restrictions and we begin to get more active. These are the kind of questions I'm going to be asking as we think about what do we do, what don't we do, what is God calling us to do? Not individually, what do you think? Yes, that's part of it, but what do we think collectively? What has God made us for? What does God want us to do? What are the opportunities before us? And what can we realistically do under God because it is ultimately God who is at work. He's not just at work calling and sending, though it is in fact the hand of the Lord that saves and judges. It's the hand of the Lord that saves. We see that, oh, in chapter 13, as they were traveling toward the end of the chapter in verse 46, Chapter 13, verse 46. Okay, I just touched my tongue to my finger. There you go. All right. 1346. They were serving and reaching out to the synagogues after their pattern, and they were they were rejected there. Paul and Barnabas. 1346 spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life behold we are turning to the Gentiles for so the Lord has commanded us I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth when the Gentiles heard this they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and now listen what it says right here. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many as who had been appointed to eternal life, verse 48, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. You know, God is at work and he's going to save people. And if there's rejection, in a sense, that's, that's not only their problem for rejecting the truth, it's ultimately God's problem to deal with. We don't need to bear the burden of trying to convince and persuade over and over and over again. We don't have that power. We don't have that strength. That power is with God. He does the work. And so he sometimes says, you know, move on from there and go to this other place. And as many as he has appointed, whoever he has declared and foreordained, it says elsewhere in Scripture, those are the ones who will come to faith. And we don't know who they are, right? And maybe those people who rejected will come to faith. We don't know. And maybe these next people we turn to, they will reject it. We don't know. God does. It's his work. That's how he has arranged it. And he is at work. We see that throughout this passage. It's God's work. You know, in chapter 14, just a little further on, verse 11, they've gone through and, and witnessed a couple places, and they're in this city called Lystra. And there's a guy who's uh, healed. That's Paul 
declares and the man stands up and people see it. In chapter 14, verse 11, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. Those Greco-Roman gods, they said, oh, they've come down in, in the flesh. And Paul is grieved by that, right? He doesn't want to take the credit. He doesn't believe it is him and his work that it is God's work. Verse 14. And when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying out and saying, Man, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And yet, verse 17 says, He did not leave himself without a witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. You know, he says, look, this healing is a pointer that there is a God who is at work. The same way, in a sense, he's saying that this same God provided for you food. It is witnessed through the rains that he gave you what you need and provided for you. Those are both arguments and they are pointers to this God whom we are preaching and proclaiming to you. They don't point to us, Paul says, but to this God who is now at work in and among you. And the reality, the sad reality is at the same time that this God who saves, and why that's so necessary is he's also the God who judges it's the God who judges, if you go to 1311, back to our magician friend, Bar-Jesus or Elemas. Sorry we have to jump around a lot, but it's a big passage. Back to chapter 13, verse 11. This magician, false prophet guy was with the leader, the proconsul of this town that they're in. And he was seeking to lead Sergius Paulus, the governor, astray. The proconsul was the, the local governor uh, and in the Roman system of government. Whether there was a military or not, you named the leaders different things. So just think of him as the governor, the mayor, whatever. Verse 11 of chapter 13. Behold, Paul says to this false prophet, Elimaeus, Behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. You see, the spirit that God calls and sends, but he also, by the hand of the Lord, saves and judges. In this case, the judgment comes now. And it's just like he said a second ago that God provides. These are pointers to him. This is a sign that God judges. The fact that he would strike this man with blindness is a pointer that God's at work and that God judges. The same way that Paul was stricken in a similar way to be blind just a few chapters ago in Acts chapter 9 we read, right? Is a sign that God judges. Those are temporary for this lifetime things that happen. But they point to a greater judgment to come, even behind those, that this God 
who will judge some in this life, ultimately judges all of us with death itself, as Hebrews 9 says that it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment. That is the God who is over all. It is why we talk about salvation, why we talk about being saved. It is rescue, not merely from broken bodies, not merely from broken relationships. It does that, ultimately, but from eternal judgment, from the wrath to come. God brings that in, and that is the truth revealed in Scripture repeatedly, that that judgment is coming. And we see it here with this Bar-Jesus fellow who tried to fight the work of God. He sought, it says, he was seeking to, to lead Sergius Paulus away from the faith, while Sergius Paulus was seeking to hear the word of God. And ultimately, did you notice at the end of what I just read in verse 11, that Bar-Jesus winds up seeking those who would lead him by the hand. You, you can't frustrate God's plan. And you need to know you can't escape God's judgment. It will come, and the choice you have is to, to bear that judgment on your own, or to let God save you from that judgment through his son. Again, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. It's pointed for man wants to die, and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. To those who eagerly wait him. You can face judgment later or be saved now through God's powerful work on the cross for you. All that requires is, is to long for Jesus' coming. All that requires is to say, you know what, I'm a sinner. And I have no standing before you, God. You are right to judge me. And I deserve hell itself. And to believe that that's how God works. And that he is just as interested in saving you from that as he is in judging you. They go together. He would not bother to save if he was not a God who had to judge. He is a God of grace and mercy. And the way he, the way he works, this powerful working, is he calls and sends, he saves and judgment, judges, but he also typically does that through his powerful word. Again, we don't have time to really dig into these. I just want to skim through the points so you have a sense of this overall passage. We're trying, by the way, to get through the book of Acts at some level by the end of the summer, and Lord willing, we plan in September to start on a series on the Ten Commandments. We'll talk some more about that. Uh, but that's part of the reason of taking giant passages. We've been looking at the book of Acts for well over a year, some of these passages just require big chunks. So anyway, there's this God's powerful work, right? It's his work, but it's also accomplished very often and mostly through God's powerful word. It's the message that's the main thing. It's not the only, but it is the main thing. We see that throughout here in this passage. As, again, I encourage you to read 
Acts chapter 13 and 14 this week. And just notice what it says about the word of God, about the message that he's declaring. It, it, it speaks of the word of God, the word of the Lord, preaching the gospel, speaking and teaching and hearing, all of these kind of synonyms dozens of times in these two chapters that the word of God, the message is the main thing. As I mentioned a minute ago, verse 6, this magician, this false prophet, was with, verse 7, says Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And he summoned Barnabas and Saul, verse 7, and sought to hear the word of God. And verse 8, but Elamas, the magician, for so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So the Sergius wants to hear the message, and the enemy of all righteousness, the one who is twisting God's ways, Paul says in his judgment, wants to turn him away from faith, it says. Have you ever thought about that connection between faith and hearing? It's right there. To turn someone away from hearing the word is to turn them away from faith. If you want to turn someone away from faith, you turn them away from hearing the word. As Romans puts it, right? Faith comes by hearing. It's part of why the Holy Spirit raises up people, calls them, and sends them that the word might go forth powerfully because the word not only has content, it has power. It not only has a message and meaning, but it causes movement. As you comprehend the word, it does something in you. And that brings you to a saving faith or it increases your judgment. And the, the difference there is in God's hands. There is nothing you and I can do to change that beyond praying and appealing to God's mercy and grace and believing that he is a God who not only judges but saves. And so we leave that in his hands and we declare this message that causes movement, that brings about faith even as you hear it. It's part of why we can't just be about good deeds. They're important. They flow from hearts that are right with God. But we also have to speak. And so part of our strategy, right, in our new plan is to serve in practical ways and to speak in personal ways. To bring the truth and the message of God into people's lives in ways that they can hear it and understand it. And the word of God can be working in their hearts as the spirit of God grants that change. The message has content and it has power. The words have meaning and they cause movement in the soul. Do you realize that without God's powerful word, coming into the hearts and lives of people. Without that word, the only change, the only difference you can make, the only difference I can make is temporary, external, 
and incremental. But the kind of difference the Word of God makes, the powerful Word of God as we bring it, is a deep, radical, life-altering, world-changing movement. That's the way God's Word works. It works from the inside, changing. Not by your strength, not by my strength, not by our effort or our knowledge or anything else, but by the Spirit of God working in us. That we would be transformed. That we would understand what it is to be saved from judgment and wrath, to be brought into the relationship and fellowship with a God who loves us and has provided for us way more than just rain and food and temporary joy, but for eternity, for life everlasting. And he did it through the death of his own son in that powerful work on the cross on our behalf. Not because we deserved it, but because he's a God of grace and mercy. And he works in powerful ways. And he testifies it in his word. And as that changes us, we see not only God's powerful work, not only God's powerful word, but we see God's powerful witness. His powerful witness is a different kind of community. It's a people like this church in Antioch and like this church right here. It is a different community. Look, look at these names again. I wish we had more time. Verse 1 of chapter 13. There were at Antioch, it's a big city, we talked about that before, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, we know him. We've talked about him before. He was from Cyprus. There is uh, Simeon, who was called Niger. Almost undoubtedly, almost guaranteed, this man was dark-skinned, most likely from North Africa. Okay, this was a cross-cultural church. Okay. Niger connotes that. This was a guy from North Africa. Then there is who? Lucius of Cyrene. There is Menaean, who is literally the foster brother of Herod the Tetrarch. That is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. That Herod, whose daughter, uh, stepdaughter, was his daughter? I can't remember. The, the little girl said, I want the head of John the Baptist. That Herod? This is, Menaean is that Herod's foster brother. They were brought up together. That's this guy. He's in that church with this African guy, with this Cyprian guy, with Saul, a formerly legalistic Hebrew of the Hebrews a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. That's a different community. The only way it comes about is by the work of God, through the word of God, bringing about this witness. Do you realize just us existing, just people seeing this, the differences among us, economically, ethnically, education, life experience, age, all of that is a witness that God is at work and his word is powerful. It doesn't happen any other way, but there's not only this different community, there's a different confidence, brothers and sisters. 
that, that we are relying upon God to work through something as foolishness as preaching the word, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. That when someone says, Why, what are you, crazy? Don't you know I was whatever? You think about the conversations about sexuality and gender. You think about the conversations about marriage and adultery and pornography and every one of those things. You think about it and people will say to you, how can you possibly believe that in this day and age? And you can say what? That I have a confidence that God has spoken objectively. And I know my hard heart, and I want so badly to believe what everyone else believes, what the world around me would accept. Why would I choose persecution and isolation and alienation? Why would I choose to be different from everyone else? I'm not a masochist. I want people to like me. What would you say to them? I, I have no other choice because God has worked in my heart. He's opened my eyes to the truth and this just makes sense of the world around me and the experience of life and the brokenness and the misery and yet the hope and that can come and all of that is available in the word of God and so I'll just stand under it. I will trust it. I don't understand why God does things the way he does things. I don't understand why he wants things the way he wants things but oh, I know this. He is a God who not only judges but he's a God who saves and he saves at great cost to himself. He puts up with me and my biases and my faults and weaknesses. And he not only does that, but he uses you and I to bring about this purpose that we would be this witness to him in this community, this confidence we have in him that we might have a calling to shine the light of Jesus, not the light of Crossroads, not the light of Pastor Mike or Pastor Dave or Pastor William or your country of origin or anything else, not the light of the United States of America, but the light of Jesus Christ. That's our calling. That's what makes us a different community. We have this different confidence in this different calling. Brothers and sisters, we are this witness. That's how change happens. That's, that's, how, that's how we can break through the political barriers and the polarizations. It's how, believe it or not, you can, like me, be set free from having your day ruined by your team's performance in sports. I'm, I'm, I'm only partly kidding. This part I'm not kidding. In the early 90s, my Sunday afternoons and my mood and what I chose to do was very much determined by whether the Eagles lost or won. And it's bizarre. It's sad, yeah. That's not the way God wants you to be. He wants you to set free, not just from idolatrous affections for sports teams, but idolatrous affections for anything. He wants you to be set free. That's part of what him saving you is all about. That, that, that you would have a confidence in him, a hope in him. That you would put your faith in, in him. That you would rely on him. That he's at work. And no matter how miserable it is, no matter how broken it is, that you know he can fix it. And he often does fix it. And eventually he will fix it. He will make it right. He will bring about peace because he has sent his son to bring that peace. And it is declared to you and you believe it because his word 
has come to you and your eyes have been opened because you have been brought to faith through that same word and that you might be a witness. How do you bring, how do you bring about the difference in this polarized world? You, world you, you rely on God's power. It's his work, his word, and his witness. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, would you meet us here as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper? After we sing in a moment, Lord, would you, would you confirm our hearts, this, this calling you've put upon us to, to be a witness together? Oh Lord, that this is your work in each of our hearts and lives and us together and in this community. It is your spirit and is your hand, O oh Lord. We thank you that it is yours, your powerful work. We pray that your word would have power in our lives and hearts. It would change us and set us free. That it would be outside of us an objective and change and transform us to who you would have us to be. And that, O oh Lord, you would make us this witness for your glory and for making a difference in this world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.